0: Good morning, church family, and grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning, as well as chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 401. I've entitled today's message, Wanted, Unbreakable Leaders. We'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider this text together. Let's bow now. Lord, we do thank you so much for your grace to us. We thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the wisdom that it contains. Thank you, Lord, for how your word, accompanied by your spirit, has the power to transform our thinking, our willing, and our doing. And Lord, please use today's text to instill in us the virtues of leadership. Lord, we want to be godly leaders in our homes, in our church, in our community. We want to be unbreakable leaders. Lord, please help us today as we seek to become... These kinds of people, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so about 20 years ago, Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky wrote a book entitled Leadership on the Line, subtitled Staying Alive Through the Dangers of Leadership. It's considered one of the great books in the field, and so I'd like to begin by reading an excerpt from the introduction. These men write, quote, every day the opportunity for leadership stands before you. And every day you must decide whether to put your contribution out there or keep it to yourself to avoid upsetting anyone. You are right to be cautious, they say. Prudence is a virtue. You disturb people when you take unpopular initiatives. You risk people's ire and make yourself vulnerable. Exercising leadership can get you into a lot of trouble. Then they go on. To lead is to live dangerously because when leadership counts, when you lead people through difficult change, you challenge what people hold dear. Their daily habits, tools, loyalties, and ways of thinking with nothing more to offer, perhaps, than a possibility. People push back when you disturb the personal and institutional equilibrium they know. And people resist in all kinds of creative and unexpected ways that can get you taken out of the game. Pushed aside, undermined, or eliminated. It's no wonder that when the myriad opportunities to exercise leadership call, you often hesitate. Anyone who has stepped out on the line leading part or all of an organization knows the personal and professional liabilities. However gentle your style, however careful your strategy, however sure you may be that you are on the right track, leadership is risky business. Leadership is risky business. And of course, no one knew that better than Nehemiah. He understood the perils of leadership. Now, if you're just joining us this week, Nehemiah was an Israelite who lived in Persia about 2,500 years ago, and he served as the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. But he was also a very godly man, and when he learned of the distressing conditions that the children of Israel were under back in the Holy Land, he knew that he had to do something And so, Nehemiah began to pray and fast and brainstorm about how God might use him to revitalize this chosen nation. And finally, Nehemiah came up with a plan, and he took it to his boss, King Artaxerxes, and he asked for permission to leave Persia to go back to Israel to help in their national revitalization. And King Artaxerxes Gave him permission. So Nehemiah went on the 750 mile journey away from Susa, where he was stationed, all the way back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah understood that if there was to be a revitalization of the nation of Israel, it would have to begin with their capital city, Jerusalem. And if there was to be a revitalization of Jerusalem, it would have to start by rebuilding their walls. Jerusalem would forever be vulnerable if those walls weren't rebuilt. And so Nehemiah took the lead in this great effort. He mobilized all of the able-bodied people of Judah, and he organized them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And for a number of weeks now, we have been watching the progress being made on these walls. We've also witnessed the cost of leadership. As Nehemiah has led this effort, he has faced ridicule, threats, internal scandals, and yet, by God's grace, he has managed to keep the project moving forward. And As we move now into today's text, we're going to see Nehemiah facing still more troubles. And yet, Nehemiah still will not be deterred. He's going to keep working on those walls, and he's going to finish those walls. And nothing, and no person is going to stop him in this effort. And friends, as we look at this text together today, here's the big idea that I want us all to take away. I want us to see that if we would be used of God to achieve something great, the way that Nehemiah was used in his day, then we are going to have to become unbreakable leaders. We are going to have to become unbreakable leaders. And, and we're going to have to raise a generation of unbreakable leaders to follow after us. But what does it mean to be an unbreakable leader? Well, friends, using this text as our guide, we're going to find that unbreakable leaders have at least four virtues four virtues. And here is the first, found in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. First of all, unbreakable leaders are willing to be despised by the unbelieving world. Willing to be despised by the unbelieving world. Now of course, they don't want to be despised. They're not seeking to be despised. They would be very happy if everybody would like them, but but unbreakable leaders are willing to endure the world's hostility if that is the price they must pay to keep God's work moving forward. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 and see this for ourselves. The text says, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I would not yet set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, quote, Come, let us meet together at Haqafarim in the plain of Ano. Okay, so you can see what's happening here. Okay, for chapters now, Nehemiah has been leading this building effort, and they are almost done. The walls are up. All that's left is just putting in the gates. And at this point, Nehemiah's adversaries are getting very nervous because they realize once the gates are in, Jerusalem will be very difficult to penetrate, and so they know they're running out of time. If they're going to stop this project, they've got to stop it right now. And so far, the jeering, the ridiculing, the threatening, none of it has worked to stop this project. So they're using a new strategy. Now they are calling for a meeting between them and Nehemiah in Haqifarim in the plain of Now, this was about 30 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. This was in hostile territory for Nehemiah. And I'm sure their invitation was written very diplomatically. I'm sure it said something like, Listen, Nehemiah, we've been at loggerheads for a while now. You've got your ideas, we've got our ideas, we haven't been able to uh, come to an understanding, so let's do this. Let's meet together... In the plain of Anno, let's hash out our differences, and maybe maybe we don't have to be enemies any longer. I'm sure that's how the letter came across, and yet Nehemiah knew that there were ulterior motives here. If you look at the end of verse 2, it says, But they intended to do me harm. So as innocent as this letter may have sounded, Nehemiah knew the real intent. They were trying to get Nehemiah out of the safety of Jerusalem, out into their territory, where he would almost certainly be either captured or killed. And since Nehemiah was the driving force behind the rebuilding efforts, if he was taken out, the project would surely grind to a halt. So this was yet another effort to stop the revitalization of Jerusalem. Well, verse 3, we see Nehemiah's response. He writes, And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Okay, So I'm sure Nehemiah was also very diplomatic about this. He says to them, Listen, guys, I know you'd love to meet with me and try to hash these things out, but you've got to understand we're at a critical stage of this building project, and I just can't get away i got to stay here in Jerusalem. I'm sure you understand. And then he got back to work. Well, verse 4, now we see the enemy's desperation. Verse 4, and they sent to me four times this way. And I answered them in the same manner. You see, Nehemiah's enemies realize that there really is no other way to stop the rebuilding effort at this point. Nothing they've tried has worked. Literally the only thing they've got left is to get Nehemiah out of the safety of Jerusalem into their territory where they can take him out. That's all they can do. And so when he says no the first time, they just come back to him again and then again and again and again, trying to wear him down with their requests. Well, verse 5 As Nehemiah continues to rebuff their invitations, says in the same way Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So this time, okay, same strategy, different tactic. This time they come to Nehemiah with an open letter. That means a letter that's going to be read to all of the residents of Jerusalem. Try to influence public opinion against Nehemiah. You know, friends, being a leader of God's people is an unspeakable privilege. But there's also a dark side to it. And we are witnessing the dark side right here. Because you see, if there is opposition to God's work, and you're the one leading God's work, then all that hostility is going to be directed at you. And it's going to come at you again and again and again. Which means, my friends, that if you aspire to spiritual leadership, whether that is leadership in your home or in your local church or in your community, if you aspire to spiritual leadership, then you're going to have to learn how to cope with hostility. You're going to have to learn how to cope with people jeering at you and threatening you and and plotting to do you harm, maybe even wishing that you were dead. You're going to have to learn how to live with this. Well, how does a person learn to cope with all of that? Well, here's what I would suggest, friends: that we cope with this by learning how to value the approval of God more than the approval of godless men. And that's all there is to it. You must learn to prioritize the pleasure of God. We need a really big view of God. We need to make the pleasure of God the greatest desire of our lives. If we can do this, if we can say, my driving ambition is to enter the presence of God and to hear from His lips, well done, good and faithful servant. If that becomes our drive, then whether people approve or disapprove of us will become immaterial to us. Of course, we would rather that everybody like us, and we would love to have praise from our fellow man. But if it would come at the cost of that joyful meeting with God, where he says to us, well done, then we are willing to give that up. Friends, learning to value God's approval over man's approval is the key to persevering in leadership when the enemies of God would seek to do you harm. Unbreakable leaders are willing to be despised. That's the first virtue of unbreakable leadership. Now we turn to the second virtue. We see that they are also leaders who will not give in to fear. They will not give in to fear. You know, fear is a theme that runs throughout our text today. We begin in verses 5 through 7. We've already read here that Sanballat, for the fifth time, sends a letter This time an open letter, but now look at what the letter says. Verse 6, in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you also uh, have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you. In Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. So four times, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all of these other adversaries had sent letters to Nehemiah inviting him to come out to Ano for a meeting. He has said no every time, so now they're using this same strategy, new tactic. They send an open letter. Here's what the letter says. It's a fear tactic. It says, you know, Nehemiah, Rumor has it that the reason why you are so determined to finish these walls is because you intend to use Jerusalem as the launching point for a rebellion against Persia. And there's also a rumor that you have prophets in Jerusalem declaring you're the rightful king. Then they say, Nehemiah, we would sure hate for this rumor to get back to King Artaxerxes. Because if he heard about this, you know what would happen. It wouldn't just be you that was killed. Every man, woman, and child in Judah would be wiped off the map. And you don't want that to happen, do you? That's what they're doing here. A fear tactic. We know that. Look at verse 9. It says, They all wanted to frighten us. They wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it Will not be done. And you know, this comes up again in verse 13, and again in verse 14, and again in verse 19. That when they couldn't get Nehemiah to them by one means, they were going to try this other means. Use fear. Make Nehemiah and all of the others of Jerusalem scared. Make them scared. Make them afraid. Friends, what is fear? Well, fear is the body's natural response to real or perceived threats. Fear is also a very powerful emotion. When you're afraid, my friends, stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline begin coursing through your body, your blood pressure and your heart rate increase, you start breathing faster, and your fight or flight instinct kicks in. And if you have to remain in a state of fear for an extended period of time, Here are the things that can happen to you. It can weaken your immune system. It can cause cardiovascular damage, migraines, gastrointestinal problems, decreased fertility, accelerated aging, and even premature death. This is what chronic fear does to a person. This is why God's enemies will often resort to fear tactics, because fear is a really unpleasant feeling, and so if you can stoke fear in a person, and then if you can sustain that fear over the long haul, it just wears your body down, and you might get to a point where you just can't bear to feel this way any longer. I mean, it's affecting your health, it's affecting everything, and you just want it to go away. If not brought under control, fear can lead you to do things you never would otherwise do, like violate your own conscience or like even give up your life 's calling and that 's what nehemiah 's enemies were trying to accomplish here. Make him afraid, not just to fear the loss of his own life, but to make him think that if he continues down this course of action, he could cost, he, he could cost the lives of all of the people that he loves, all the people that he's laboring for, that all of Israel's hopes could come crashing down. They want to make him afraid of this. Well, how is Nehemiah going to handle the fear tactics? Well, in verses 8 and 9, we see three responses. Response number one, he calls out the lies. Look at verse 8. He goes on, then I sent to them, saying... Quote, no such things as you have, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. So Nehemiah's adversaries had come with an open letter, read in the hearing of the public, and so Nehemiah must respond to the charges in public. This is what he does here. He declares in the hearing of all, "You are liars." We're not rebuilding Jerusalem because we want to rebel against Persia. I'm not declaring myself any kind of king. No. This is just about restoring our ancient home. That's all. We just want our home again. And then verse 9, he prays for courage. It says here, They all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Notice how he pivots to prayer now. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. I get the sense here that all of this this opposition to Nehemiah is beginning to wear on him. Maybe his hands are growing a little shaky. And so... As this latest attempt to stop the work comes his way, he just has to stop and pray to God and say, God, strengthen these hands. Make me courageous again. Help me to keep working, even with all of this opposition coming my way. So he calls out the lies and he prays to God for courage. And then, friends, he just keeps on working. He just keeps going. Listen, my friends, we cannot give people the power to make us afraid. That's doubly true of those who would like to be spiritual leaders because as a leader, you are going to be confronted with some frightening things. Whether you're a Christian mom or dad or employer or a a Christian deacon or pastor or an organizational leader, you are going to confront some frightening things sometimes. You must not allow people to give you the power to make you so afraid that you would give up the good work that God would have you to do. When those times come, you must be able to take your stand. But friends, how do we overcome the fear of man? The answer is that we overcome it with the fear of God. With the fear of God. And I'm talking about that healthy kind of fear the people around us and their opinions and their threats and their strategies and their tactics and all of that, it will start to be less threatening to us if we have a really, really big view of God. If you see God in all of his glory and majesty and power and dominion, then you will see humans for what they really are, small and powerless. What is the worst they can do to us? scriptures say they can kill the body but they cannot kill the everlasting soul we have no reason to fear men if we have a healthy fear of god those threats that come your way from from godless people if your view of god is big enough suddenly these threats will just look like a bunch of little ants shaking their fist at you how dare you do god's work You won't be afraid of them if your God is big. Another thing that can take away your fear is having assurance that you're in a state of grace. Because you see, one thing that can make the prospect of death really frightening is if you're not sure what's going to happen to you after death. If you're thinking, when I meet with God, is he going to receive me? Or, or is he going to cast me away? See, that's really where the anxiety over death comes from. It, it's not knowing our standing with God. You know, that fear can be taken away if you will just make sure that you are in a state of grace. Be sure that, that you have approached God through Christ in repentant faith, that you have trusted wholeheartedly in his life and death and resurrection. Be sure that you are counted among his disciples. And if you will have assurance of this, then when people threaten you with even the worst that they can do, suddenly it will not be overpowering to you. My friends, we need unbreakable leaders today. We need leaders that are willing to be despised by the world and leaders who will not cave to fear. But then thirdly, we see, verses 10 through 14, we also need leaders who are not deterred by the pain of betrayal. Not deterred by the pain of betrayal. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his house, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple, Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, who's the Shemaiah character? Well, apparently this was a prophet and perhaps also a temple priest, which means Shemaiah was a, a fellow Jew. He was living in Jerusalem, and at that moment it says he was confined to his home, probably because of some ritual uncleanness. But why would Shemaiah suggest that he and Nehemiah go hide in the temple? To, to run from the threats of Israel's enemies like this? Well, look at Nehemiah's response, verse 11. We start to get an idea of what's going on here. Verse 11, But I said, Shall a man, uh, Should such a man as I run away? You want me to run away? How can I run away? Saying, I am the leader of this effort. If I run away, what do you think is going to happen to all the workers? They're going to run away too, and the work will stop. You wouldn't want me to to bring the whole project to a halt, would you? I mean, you're a religious leader, aren't you? You're one of us, aren't you? You wouldn't want me to do that. And then he goes on, second part of verse 11, he says, And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? So I will not go in. He says, listen, besides all of that, I'm not a prophet and I'm not a priest. I have no right to enter the temple. If I entered, God could rightly strike me dead. So either way, I'm a dead man. I keep working, they, you say they'll kill me. Well, if I enter the temple, God will kill me. Might as well just continue doing the work of God on the temple. City walls, then, might as well just stay right where I am. I'm a dead man either way. But now here's where the story takes a really sad turn. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. You know, friends, of all the challenges a leader must face, none is more painful than dealing with betrayal. Nothing is worse than betrayal. Because what happens with betrayal is that you have a person who has pledged themselves to the same cause as you. And they have proclaimed their loyalty to you. And it's a person that has labored alongside of you, maybe for a long time. And you have poured out your hearts to each other, and you have done the work of God together. But then, through no fault of your own, they just turn on you. And it comes at an unexpected time. They just turn on you. And now suddenly, this person who was your friend has become your enemy. And this one who is working in the same cause as you is now trying to cause others to oppose you. Friend, there is nothing worse than betrayal. Has this ever happened to you? Maybe in your family? Maybe at work? I hope not in church. Has this ever happened to you? Someone that made vows maybe to to love and cherish you, suddenly turning against you. Or maybe someone that you had personally led to Christ, and they were a part of your church family because of you, and you thought you saw spiritual growth in their lives, and then suddenly they just come to you and they say, guess what, now you're my enemy, and they walk away and it's done. Nothing worse than that. So demoralizing. That's what happened to Nehemiah. Here is this religious leader in Jerusalem, someone who's been with him all of this time, and now suddenly he's doing the work of Nehemiah's enemies. He's trying to get Nehemiah to stop building the walls. He's turned. He's turned on Nehemiah. Now, how's Nehemiah going to get past this? How do you get past the the pain of betrayal? Well, look at his prayer, verse 14. He says, Remember, Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, right? These things they did in turning my own people against me. Then he says, And also the prophetess, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid so this is the first time we learned that it's not just one religious leader but there's a whole gaggle of these people turning against Nehemiah he's got a whole cohort treating him as an enemy now and all he can do is just pray he just prays about it My friend, when you face a great betrayal, the best thing you can do is just get on your knees and then hand that pain off to God. And then just remember these truths. Remember that your commission, whatever it is, dad, mom, church member, deacon, pastor, whatever your job is, you have that job by the commission of God. It doesn't come from man. And you remember that God will never leave or forsake you. Everybody else might turn from you. He never will. And you also remember this, that God never asks you to endure anything that he hasn't been willing to endure himself. See, God knows what it's like to be betrayed. He was betrayed by that great angel called Lucifer, now called the devil. Perhaps the most glorious of all of God's created beings, but turned on God taking many angels with him. And then in the Garden of Eden, as God built that perfect paradise for Adam and Eve, and God walked with them in the Garden. They turned against him, became his enemies. Or think of our Lord Jesus Christ, how one of his best friends, a man named Judas, was the very one who turned him over to the authorities and had him crucified. You see, God knows what it's like to be Betrayed. And so we continue on. We continue on. We press past the hostility of the godless world. We do not succumb to their fear tactics. We are not stopped by painful betrayals. We keep on going. And now very quickly we see a fourth virtue here. Unbreakable leaders learn to live in a state of peril. They learn to live in a state of peril. And really, this point just kind of combines all of the others together. To live with peril means you learn how to live with hostility and fear and betrayal and threats and all of it. You just learn to live with it. Quickly, let's look at verses 15 through 19 of our text. Nehemiah says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. So he did it. He did it. He pressed past everything that was put against him. And it's done. The walls, the gates, all of it. Look at verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So all this time, Nehemiah's enemies have tried to make him afraid. But he's pressed past it. And look what's happened now. A great reversal has taken place. Now they are the ones afraid. Because they were up against an unbreakable man of God, and he could not be deterred. And they realized there is no stopping a person like that. A person who has God on his side. It goes on, verse 17, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Okay, so now we understand how all of these betrayals took place. Apparently there were some family connections between The rich and powerful of Israel, like the religious leaders and the nobles, and the rich and powerful of Israel's surrounding nations, the guys like Sanballat and Tobiah. There were family connections between these groups, and there were exchanges of letters between them. And so, Tobiah and Sanballat, they would send letters into Israel, and then those families would send letters back. That's how they maintained their communication, that's how people in Jerusalem were able to be turned against Nehemiah. Nehemiah is just going to live with this, and he's going to keep pressing on. Now, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, it says, "...and now when the wall had been built, and I set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem." For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they were still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no house had been rebuilt. So the walls are finished, and now the real revitalization is beginning. Here we see the worship of Jerusalem being restored, but we know here that life in Jerusalem was still very dangerous, very few residents, big city to watch over, and nobody had their homes built up yet. And so Nehemiah appoints guards to keep watch, and he establishes a curfew to get everyone behind the city walls before dark. But you notice here he does not leave. He accepts the perils of leadership. He's going to stay there no matter what comes their way. Friends, in his book entitled Risk is Right, John Piper offers this challenge. He says a choice lies before you. Either waste your life or live with risk. Either sit on the sidelines or get in the game. After all, life was no cakewalk for Jesus, and he didn't promise it would be any easier for his followers. We shouldn't be surprised by resistance and persecution. Yet most of us play it safe. We pursue comfort. We spend ourselves to get more stuff, and we prefer to be entertained. We're all tempted by the idea of security, the possibility of a cozy Christianity. But what kind of a life is that, really? It's a far cry from adventurous and abundant, from truly rich and really full, and it's certainly not the heights and the depths that Jesus calls us to. So he concludes with this, see the joys of a faith-filled and seriously rewarding life of Jesus-dependent abandon. That's the need of the hour, my friends. If I can wrap this up now, what we need today, what we need today are spiritual leaders. We need godly fathers and mothers and pastors and deacons and community leaders. But if we would truly be used of God in a leadership capacity, then we must learn to become unbreakable, which is to say that we must put on the virtues of leadership. We must be a people willing to be despised by the world, if that's the price to pay to do God's work. We must never give in to fear. We must not be deterred by the pain of betrayal. And we must learn how to live in peril. My friends, in the years ahead, these virtues will only become more important, not less. And so let us do what we must to become this kind of leader. Christian, what steps do you need to take to become a leader like this today? What spiritual disciplines have you been neglecting that you really need to start taking seriously? Parents, what must you do to raise a generation of unbreakable leaders? What kind of education do you think your children need? What level of involvement in a local church do they need? What kind of example do you need to provide for them? What opportunities do you need to give them? What adversity do you need to expose them to? Parents, what do you need to do to raise a new generation of spiritual leaders with unbreakable resolve? Church members, what can you do to help one another become the leaders that we need at this hour? As we think about that together, let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for this text. We thank you for the example of leadership that Nehemiah provides for us. And we pray that you would help us to model these leadership qualities as well. Help us, Lord, to be like Christ himself, the ultimate model of an unbreakable, persevering leader. Help us, Lord, to be worthy of our calling as Christians. And Lord, please reward our efforts by building in us in our midst, strong Christian families and a strong, enduring local church, a faithful gospel witness that reaches every neighborhood represented by our church family. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.